Welcome to the Breaking Through in Cybersecurity Marketing podcast, where we explore the hottest topics in cyber marketing, interview experts, and help you become a better cybersecurity marketer. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Breaking Through in Cybersecurity Marketing. I'm your co-host, Gianna Whitford. And Maria. Yep, Maria's here too. (laughs) And we are so excited to have this amazing guest with us today, David Leishner, who is the Chief Marketing Officer at Cybellum. Cybellum is a company that deals in the product security lifecycle management stage. And David also has experience at other cybersecurity companies. He was chief marketing officer at Scream, and he was also the VP of global marketing and sales for EMEA at Cynet. So he has a really interesting and storied background. And we're super excited to have him on because he's been both head of marketing and head of sales, which is a unique position to be in. So David, let's jump right into this. How did you get to where you are today to be CMO of Cybellum? What is your story? What is my story? Well, first of all, thank you for having me on this show. It's really a pleasure to be here. So I've really had a long career. It actually started out on Wall Street when I was finishing up my bachelor's degree in computer information systems. And I went to a bank called Solomon Brothers, an investment bank, which at the time was the investment bank on Wall Street. And they offered me two different types of career paths. One is to be a junior programmer of COBOL, which I don't even know if many of your listeners know what COBOL is, but it's one of the old time development languages. To either do that or to go into the networking area. And I decided to go into networking. And actually in networking, I was very much involved in network security way, way, way before the term cyber ever came to be. And From Solomon, I moved out to LA. So I grew up in New York and I moved out to Los Angeles after a few years at Solomon. And I worked for a company called TRW Space and Defense. And there, once again, network security operations. And I really was getting my hands dirty in everything to do with like checking packets as they were coming along, trying to almost what you would call today red team or threat hunting to make sure that people weren't Mm -hmm. breaking into the systems before those terms ever, (laughs) ever emerged. From California, I had a dream that started when I was a little kid of moving to Israel. And so I actually, I moved out to Israel in the early 90s. I started working for the PTT here, the Bezik, which is the big telecom. And I went to meet with the VP of engineering. And she looked at my background and she said, wow, yeah, you're really technical and, you know, security and, you know, networks. And, but there's only one thing, you're not an engineer. So... Really, because you're not an engineer, you have a bachelor's in business information systems, so maybe you'd be better off in marketing. And I said, but, you know, I know the systems inside out, everything you're working on. I was still trying to stay on the technical side. And she said, yeah, but I think you'd maybe be better off in marketing. So actually, that's how I moved into marketing after several years working in technology and hands-on in cyber, or security. I moved on to the marketing side, and it's all history from there. I started working for vendors and after that. And I've worked since the mid nineties, I've been working for software vendors, either on security or enterprise software, data analytics, and sometimes all of them combined. So you were forced into marketing is what it (laughs) sounds like reluctantly. (laughs) I was kind of pushed into marketing and then I did an MBA in marketing. (laughs) So I actually decided that was a good path for me. 
Because one of the things I realized was that most marketeers at the time didn't really understand technology. So I had an advantage that I understood technology on one side, and then I also understood marketing and then later on sales. So yeah, it's really worked well together. And and in fact, I see that in Israel, at least, and also in the US, a lot of the successful marketeers are the ones that have started out with some kind of a technology background, because that way they understand they're actually selling tech products that they understand what it is that they're actually marketing. Agreed. Agreed. And that, by the way, fun fact, that is exactly why Gianna and I and Aileen got together and said, we need the marketing, the cybersecurity marketing society, because us marketers in cybersecurity need a place where we could learn and become more technical and understand the industry on a deeper level. Yeah, I think today a lot more marketing people who didn't take technology, they kind of learn it on the fly. And I think it's, <laughs> and there are just so many places, whether you do it internally, hands-on, or you learn it online, the opportunities are much greater today to pick up maybe the basic understandings of cyber. So David, you've been in Israel since the 90s. So you've been there for 30 years or so now. And that feels weird because the 90s still feels like 10 years ago or whatever. That but makes me feel old. That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> can you talk about, and this is from like a marketing brand perspective, can you talk about the evolution of Israel as being known as a place where there are a lot of very successful cybersecurity vendors and how Israel has grown a brand toward being known as the mecca of cybersecurity startups. Yeah, sure. So my first visit to Israel was in the early 70s. <laughs> and at the time, I think the biggest export, there were two exports. One was oranges and the other was diamonds. So Israel was always known as being a place where diamonds would be cut. They would bring them in from various places in the world. They had experts here in cutting diamonds and then they would export them. What happened was that over the years, as the world became more connected, it's no secret that we have three borders that we have to protect on a 724-365 basis. It's almost like the people in the military understand that we have to be the best at almost everything we do, probably at everything we do. The biggest compliment I got actually was when I was at TRW and I was talking to an ex-fighter pilot and he said to me, well, you know, Israel has the best air force in the world. And I said, wow, coming from you? And he said, look, you guys are, are flying sorties on a daily basis. We don't do that here. Our homeland security is basically two borders that we're at peace with. So Israel has three borders that constantly, even though we're, we're at peace with a couple of the neighbors, but we still have to constantly be on guard. So what happens is that there are several units inside of the army. One of them is 8200, which is quite well known today. It used to be a, a very secret unit. Today, it's quite well known, probably because some of the companies that are traded on NASDAQ, their founders all came from the same 8200 club in the intelligence unit of the army. So basically, what you have is an incubator of founders, of entrepreneurs, that at the time when in America, we would be going to first degree in college. So they're actually jumping right in, hands-on to real-life situations and handling cybersecurity issues. They're given the training, but they're given a training, which, and we'll talk about this later, I hope, a little bit about, they're kind of combining the academic training together with the hands-on training within the military. And then they usually, if they're good, which a lot of them are, they usually get a first degree in the army. Sometimes they'll get a degree in computer science. Sometimes they'll get a degree in physics or math. And then they'll go on even to second degrees. And when they get out at 24, 25, 
not only do they have at least one, if not two degrees, but they also have the hands-on working experience in cyber. And so the country is cultivating, and by the way, not just in cyber, also in data analytics, also in a lot of biomed technology. There's all kinds of technologies that have come from a military basis and then are commercialized for use in industry. That's really interesting. So tell us a little bit more about this technology program within the higher ed journey. I'm always super interested in this part because I think even for marketers doing a business degree, there could have been so much more that we could have learned in college in terms of how to be hands-on marketer, technology, tech stack that you don't necessarily actually get to learn. So tell us about, I think the program is called Cyber Elite. Tell us a little bit more about it. Sure. But before I do that, I just want to mention one more unit, the AD153 unit, which is also getting more popular now and being talked about in the industry. Actually, the founders of Cybellum, where I came from, the CEO was the soldier of the co-founder. So it was the officer and one of his soldiers. They founded the company and they brought with them seven or eight guys from their unit. And all of these guys came from the same technology unit. And within a few years, they have this amazing startup running that was bought in September by LG. So that's another one of the other units. And there are a few of them. There's another one that deals more with the database side, enterprise software side. So it's really like an incubator for entrepreneurs and also for training people who are going to work in the startups and the bigger companies here. On the academic side, so I'm the chairman of the Israeli Friends of the Jerusalem College of Technology, and I'm also on the board of trustees. This is something I do on the side, I believe very much in giving back to the community. And we started a program about three or four years ago called Cyber Elite. And what that program does is we work with industry. So we are in touch with and working together with, I don't know, today, probably about 40 different cyber security companies. Wow, that's a lot. Everything ranging from Checkpoint and Palo Alto at the high end to startups like Cyned and Cybellum, let's say at the smaller side, smaller companies. And what we do is we have a program where we take the computer science students who are in there, either in their fourth year and finishing up or their one year in the market, meaning it would be like a fifth year. And we have a curriculum that combines two to three days a week where they're in the company And the other two to three days, they're learning in class. And what they're learning is a curriculum that was developed together with the cybersecurity companies. So it's the stuff that they need. And there is such a shortage of good developers and analysts and researchers in the market that what we're trying to do is to help to fill that need. And we have 100% placement which is incredible. And generally the people that uh, go into a company, you could call it almost an internship, but they do get paid for it. Let's say it's a paid internship and they continue working in the same companies. So it's something that I think every university, every college can do. And especially in the United States where you have pockets of security companies in Boston, in Seattle, in California, in Philly. I mean, there's all kinds. And they could work with the local in Maryland. How can we forget Maryland, the University of Maryland with their big cyber program? Mm -hmm. So I think they could definitely work with the local companies and industry. And it doesn't only have to be in cyber. It can be in other things as well. And really help to fill the gaps that exist in resources and for these companies. Oh, one more thing, by the way. We're also doing it, and this is a twist. We have a portion of the population here, the ultra-Orthodox, who they spend most of their time learning Jewish studies as they grow up. 
And many of them don't even take math or English in high school. And we have a lot of them coming as well. We give them a one-year training before they start the first degree. Within one year, they do the basic math and, and English and sciences in order to get into the program. So we have guys coming out who are dressed in the traditional ultra-Orthodox garb, some of whom turn into mm -hmm. some of the best cybersecurity analysts in the country. A friend of mine, actually, who I worked with a few years back, he's Hasidic. So he wears a black hat and a black coat and has, I forget what they call them. <laughs> I'll stop there. So he has, yeah. So he is on the Google list of one of the top people to identify vulnerabilities in Google. And of course, he gets paid wow. for it a bit, whatever. But he's like one of the top ethical hackers in the country. Just as an example. That's really interesting. And it's amazing to hear that it's an inclusive program and it gives opportunities for students unlikely to take up this path in their sort of small community and culture. Well, since this week we had International Women's Day, I'm very proud, really proud, that our program, not just the cyber program, but our computer science program, we have 20% of the women who learn computer science in Israel, they learn at the Jerusalem College of Technology which considering That's how amazing. many universities and colleges we have, it's an incredible number and we're very proud of it. Let's go ship some of those women this way so we can fill that skills gap and put more women in tech and cybersecurity in the US. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so before we move on to more of a marketing discussion, I had one more question about the brand of Israel as a cybersecurity hub. So I'm curious, and David, I don't know if you, you know the answer to this or have kept track, but has Israel, actually, I'll back up a second. So I'm from Tampa, Florida, or I used to live in Tampa, Florida, and there was a big push with economic development in order to brand Tampa, Florida as a big startup hub. And it's been, I've watched it over the past five years go from like, eh, they're tertiary. This is like a place where people go to party, Tampa, Florida, to like, hey, there's actually a lot of technology and a lot of growth and a lot of opportunity and a lot of resources here. If you want to be a tech founder to come move to Tampa, Florida, above all the places, leave Boston, leave New York, leave San Francisco, come to Florida. So I'm curious if you saw with Israel, any economic development push or anything else in promotion of themselves. And if that influenced sort of other people's perceptions too, I'd be curious about the marketing of itself too. Right. That's a good question. And it's something I actually know quite well because I did my thesis in New York at City University. I did my thesis on Israel and why American companies were investing so much in Israel. Why you have companies like, actually, you know what? Why every major company in America, every major tech company has a R&D base here in Israel, whether it's Google, whether it's Facebook, whether it's Intel, whether it's Microsoft, and a lot of the initial development of a lot of the processors were developed here, semiconductors, operating systems for Microsoft, it's just incredible, the chips, just talking on that side, not to mention on the cybersecurity side. So it comes from a couple of things. One, it comes from the base of engineers that are coming out of the army. The other thing is that the government had incubator programs in place for helping startups to get off the ground including they had a program from the chief scientist's office where they were actually getting funding for the initial product development, the initial development of prototypes. So there's a really, really strong connection between what the government sees as the vision for the country as being a high-tech hub, 
on one hand. The other thing is that we have a lot of uh, multinational venture capitalists here. So we have Battery, we have Benchmark, we have Greylock. There are many of them that are based in Insight. Look how much investment Insight has made in Israel in the last couple of years since they came in. It's incredible. And they just recently set up a very strong office here. Actually, it's someone I know quite well, who's one of the managing directors. And so if you take into account the combination of multinationals that are here in order to have a very strong base of R&D in this part of the world, you take into account the government programs and the incubators, and you add to that the venture capital money that is here to help invest in these startups. Mm -hmm. It's a recipe for creating a high-tech nation. And that's basically what's happened over the last 20, 25 years. By the way, I'm proud to say that I was the vice president of global marketing for a company called Magic Software, which was the first software company to go public on NASDAQ back in the early 90s. So I did that for six years. Oh, wow. That's amazing. We are going to have to have you back on to talk about that. That would be very fun to hear yeah, that, that story. The first ring the bell. <laughs> no, I wasn't involved in the IPO. That took place before I joined. But that was a small IPO for about, I think it was $16 million. But I was involved in the secondary where I did the roadshow as well. And that was $106 million at almost a billion dollar valuation. And that was uh, quite unique and quite an amazing trip. And now we'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsors and producers, Hacker Valley Media. Chris Cochran and Ron Eddings run an amazing studio here, which produces not only the Breaking Through in Cybersecurity Marketing podcast, but a bunch of other shows that you're going to want to listen to as well. So all these shows plus more, and then on top of that, probably even more coming soon, are available to look at, listen to, and sponsor at HackerValley.com. Make sure you go over there and say, hey, Gianna and Maria said I should come check out your website, listen to your shows, and uh, sponsor a podcast or two. So let's dive into the meat and bones of your career as a marketer and as a marketer in cybersecurity. You have a really interesting background because you've also done sales. And so you've worn both hats and experienced what it's like to be ahead of sales and ahead of marketing. This is my favorite topic, by the way, sales and marketing alignment. And Gianna knows this already. Uh, <laughs> give us some of your secrets to making that relationship a success. And then, of course, tell us about some of the mistakes you've made along the way. Okay. So I'd like to start off with a story of a product marketer who came into my office a while back. And he said to me, I told you, we agreed I was going to go to visit our German branch. And I got in touch with them, but they keep pushing me off. And I'm not sure why, but I really want to go there. And I said, okay, so why are they pushing you off? He said, I don't know. I said, well, what's their main job in life in that branch? And he said, to sell. I said, okay, so they're busy or they should be busy every minute of the day that they're there trying to sell. So what are you bringing to them that's going to be more important than them making their quota? What is it that you want to present to them? And he said to me, I, you know, I thought I'd talk to them about our vision and our roadmap. I said, but they know that already. It's not something special. I said, how about creating battle cards to defeat the competition? Do you think that that might be something you can do that may, might be of interest to them? He said, I can do it. Whether it's of interest, I'll have to check. I said, well, why don't you do this? First, find out who they're competing against the most and they know the least about. And then call them up and say, hey, I'm going to come over and I'm going to teach you guys everything you need to know about 
beating these guys, you know, beating the competition. He comes into my office a couple of days later and he says, look, I'm leaving next week. Is it okay? I said, where are you going? He said, the German branch. <laughs> I said, okay, now you understand about bringing value and taking people away and helping them in order to close deals. I said, marketing's role in life is to wake up in the morning and say, what can I do today so that the salespeople are able to close more deals and to close those deals more quickly? And this was before I was a sales guy. Okay, so then I went into sales and there were a couple of positions that I held where I, I was also the CMO and also I took care of either distribution sales or direct sales. And I was really schizophrenic. I would yell at myself and I'd wake up in the morning and say, you didn't bring me enough leads. And I'd say, you don't know how to close the deals. And I'd be talking to myself. <laughs> and so I really got to understand what it is that the salespeople are facing when they go out to battle and they don't have enough ammunition. They don't have the backing that they need. They call people and they get answers that are fluff and they're not solid answers that they need in order to close deals. They get a POC with an amazing company. And when it comes time to deliver, maybe the guys are a bit, they just don't get it. You come in, you dress nice, you get in front of the computer, you come into their office, you, everything has to be tipped up in a POC in order to close the deal. So what I learned a lot about, and I'm sure I made a lot of mistakes early in my career, was that I wasn't sensitive enough to the needs of the salespeople. And I think this issue, by the way, of marketing and sales comes up a lot. And I've worked with many CROs and many VP sales when I'm on the marketing side. And one of the things that comes up a lot is, okay, who brought the lead? So I had a story at one of the companies I worked for where I came into a management meeting and it was actually a satellite company. And they said, well, the website, when I joined, I, they said, you know, the website's mostly for investors. It was early 2000. And I said, okay, but really we should have a website that portrays what we do. Actually, it was 2012. And I said, okay, so we created this really nice website. And I come into the management meeting and I said, we have somebody in, I think it was in Japan, who's interested in buying 12 antennas, these antennas that sit on top of military vehicles and basically they're used for mobile communications. And it was like, people were amazed. So the CEO said, okay, I'm there next week. I'll go with this other person and we'll go there and we'll visit them. So the guy comes into my office a week and a half later, the guy who went with the CEO and he looked at me, he goes, that wasn't a lead from you. And I said, why not? And he said, because the local agent told that the person who came to the website, he told him to come to the website and have a look, but he already was thinking about buying those antennas ahead of time. I said, okay, oh, so come it's, on. I said, serious, <laughs> serious story. I said, so what you're telling me is that that local agent was the source and because he's connected to sales, sales is the source of that lead. He said, yep. I said, the fact that the website looked great, the fact that everything was presented properly, he could download the brochures. I said, that didn't mean anything, right? He said, well, you know, he would have probably contacted us anyway. I said to him, you know what? You're right. I said, I'm really happy that you guys are going to close the deal. And I really hope you close the deal. And I'm looking forward to giving you all the credit. And he looked at me and he said, that's it. And I said, yeah, I said, that's it. I said, we didn't screw it up, right? He said, no. I said, they came to the website. It looked okay. He said, yeah. I said, so we didn't mess up, right? He said, no. I said, so maybe we facilitated a little bit. He said, maybe. I said, good. We did our part. You did your part. Go close the deal. Okay. Oh, <laughs> so <laughs> I learned. This story makes me laugh so much. 
And the other thing is, most of the time, marketing people don't have quotas, right? But the salespeople do. So as far as I'm concerned, the salespeople should always get the credit. They should always get their commissions and they should make enough money that I have a big budget to spend for marketing because marketing, we spend money. What other profession are you given millions of dollars and said, go and be creative and just bring us a few leads you know, on the way, <laughs> maybe a lot of leads on the way. I mean, we have a fun profession here in marketing. We get to try new things. We get to innovate. We get to be creative. We get to go out to conferences and to meet people all over the world. It's a great profession. Love it. Yeah. So I firmly believe that my favorite person in the company, there are two people actually, one is the CRO or the VP sales. And the second is, who's the second one? The CFO. And the CFO. And the CFO. The CFO, exactly. <laughs> and my relationship has always been with CFOs that I go in and I tell them, look, I'm signing off on this, or I need you to sign off depending on what the signatory rights are. And they never question what I'm doing. We won't talk about the penguins, but when I came in and I said, I'm signing off on $10,000 to bring two penguins to a conference, he looked at me and he goes, you're probably crazy, but I trust you. So, and he just signed right off on it. So that was. (laughs) (laughs) I loved it. You hear that marketing leaders drop the attribution problem. It's not worth the fight. (laughs) You know what? I don't even know if it's worth the fight. Especially now with automation, I think it's not a fight. You can always go back and see. So we had a situation just the other day. A lead came in and it was a lead where the people had taken care of it before. There was no decision taken, right? So now a lead came in from the site. I want a demo. I want a from a product security manager. And it's a very big company. So I left and I said, oh, this is perfect. So who was the lead source? And those guys had already worked on it. Now another one comes in. I said... I don't care. You want to say it was from them? It was from here. It's fine. As long as marketing touches it and we do well to help it move through the funnel, I'm satisfied. Love it. As long as someone responds to the lead. <laughs> and as long as we didn't, right. like you said, we didn't mess up. <laughs> no, not only didn't we mess up, but we brought the lead, we facilitated, we nurtured. And at the end of the day, the person who stands on the stage at the end and gets the award for the most sales is the salesperson. And I enjoyed doing that also when I was selling. I really, really, really enjoyed closing deals. And at Signet, it was a very small company when I joined, and I definitely closed a lot of the first deals that they had. And it was a real pleasure now to see them growing. I mean, they're they're now you went from twenty people up to several hundred. It's really great to see. So, what are some other things that marketing can learn from sales? I think specifically in regards to events and conferences. In the pre-call, we had a really good discussion about how to use events, conferences, speaking to be more effective. And it's not something that all marketers think about. It's almost ABM. Like give some tips and tricks there. Yeah. So, I mean, that's going back to, let's say, traditional marketing. I think there are a couple of things here that are important from a mindset point of view. I took a value selling class a long time ago, and I think every marketeer should take it. The primary premise was that the product is in the eyes of the buyer. Okay, and that you should sell and market value. And even when you're talking to people at conferences, it should always not be about trying to push them to give you information and to tell them, just shove a demo down their throat. You want to build a relationship. You want to build the network. And you can do it in a fun way. There's nothing wrong with that. I remember I was at a conference where 
two of the, well, it was a very big retailer in the UK and they were having a beer. It was the end of the day. And I walked over to them and I said, you haven't finished your day yet if you haven't been to our booth. <laughs> and I said, you're already having your beers. So I'll tell you what, I'm going to go get a beer and then we'll meet at my booth. And they said, all right, yeah. And we ended up selling to them. <laughs> so you do it in a fun way. And I think this is something that also with LinkedIn, there's the SDRs of the world and even the marketers. You wouldn't believe how many times somebody wants to connect to me. And sometimes I'll connect to, I have 24,000 followers, so I don't mind. I'll connect to someone. And if in the next five minutes they pitch me, I dump them, right? Because that's not how you build relationships. You build relationships on understanding people. And by the way, I think in every market you can learn. So I do a lot of research with contacts that I have on LinkedIn. Some of them I'll continue on with in order, honestly, to take them from the marketing point to the sales point where I can hand it off to the salespeople and say, this is a hot lead, he's interested. But a lot of times I do it because I want to learn more about what the issues are. And in fact, we had one of the big electronics companies. I spoke to someone a few months ago. Actually, it was about two months ago. And there was a sales meeting this week. And that's because at the end of a couple of our discussions, I had a few discussions with him because I was learning a lot from him. And at the end of one of them, he said, you know, I really should look at Cybellum. And I said, I didn't want to say it. I said, I've been thinking it since the first call that we had together. I wanted it to come from you. And I'm very happy to put you in touch with our guys. And I think whether you're doing email sequences or you're doing events or you're doing podcasts or webinars or whatever it is, you should always have in mind that you have to build the relationship. You're not selling features, you're selling benefits, you're selling value. You have to understand the person on the other side in order that you can then really position what you have for them and make sure that you have the right fit. Now, it's easier when you have a smaller like a B2B type of situation where you're selling to a smaller audience. If you have a B2C type of situation, then it's mass marketing and it's not something I've ever done. I've never done B2C marketing and I probably wouldn't be very good at it because if I took the time to build relationships with every single person I wanted to sell to, then the company would probably go bust before they would bring in enough revenue. You'd be standing there in the supermarket greeting every single person coming to buy the can of soup. It wouldn't be very scalable, probably. No, right? <laughs> it would not be scalable. <laughs> so I love, we're getting close on time. I just want to say, I love what you say, your thesis and your philosophy on relationship building, David, because as marketers, a lot of us are behind the curtain. We're not talking to customers enough. We're calling people personas and ICPs instead of and of course, that's important in terms of categorizing, but we're not thinking about people from the individual level. And if you're selling do really large enterprises, there's only so many companies out there that you can sell to. And it's good to go out there and actually meet some people and like build some actual relationships and get to know them and their actual problems. So I think it's time for our game. Am I right, Maria? And you're on mute. So you, I heard you say yes, though. I saw your face move. <laughs> yes, let's do it. <laughs> All right. So at the end of every show... And we don't prep anyone for this. So at the end of every show, we asked all of our guests this question. What would you be doing if you weren't doing what you're doing now, if you weren't in marketing? And David, for you, we're going to also have to exclude a couple other things. You can't say sales because you have done sales and you can't say technology, like being an IT person, because you've done that. And then you also can't say professor. <laughs> so it's, it might be tough. <laughs> but what would you be doing if you were not a CMO? Okay. So 
I know what I would be doing today, but do you want to know what I would be doing 20 years ago? I'll tell you why today, because I've been blessed with a wonderful wife. We actually met here in Israel. I'm from America. She's from England. So we had this mixed marriage of trying to figure out each other's English. We have five children and I have two grandchildren. One was born two months ago. One was born a year ago. Actually, tomorrow is her English birthday. Tomorrow is her uh, birthday. (laughs) say English birthday. We have a Hebrew calendar and an English calendar. And depending on who you are, you celebrate one, the other, or both. So in today's world, if I wasn't in marketing, I would probably just be out off with my grandkids every day, enjoying that. But if I go back 10 years, 15 years, I would probably be a tour guide. And that's what my kids have always said I should do because I love people. I love traveling. I don't know if I told you in our initial call, but I had a break between two companies in October and I spent a month While COVID was at the bottom here and also in Nepal, I flew and I did a two and a half week trek in the Himalayas and I went to Gokyo Lakes, which is incredible. And then on the way back, I took a helicopter around Everest and it was just amazing. And so I spent one month solid in Nepal and that's my fourth time in the Himalayas. So I love trekking and I would probably be a tour guide here in Israel because I love showing off the country. I would probably combine the ancient sites of Jerusalem and Hebron and all of the ancient sites together with a tour of the high-tech arena and the biomed arena and to show people the incredible, it's like the phoenix, you know, the arises in how after a couple of thousand years, we're back here in this homeland. And not only do we have the ancient stuff, but we also have, and also, by the way, the Jewish sites, the Christian sites, the Muslim sites, everything. We had a group over, we had our kickoff a few weeks ago and we did a tour. Actually, the CRO is an ex-tour guide, (laughs) our CRO, Colin. He's an ex-tour guide. So he and I took the group from all over the world. We took them to Jerusalem and he was the primary tour guide. I was the secondary because I actually lived in Jerusalem for a while. And so really combining the ancient with the new and uh, it's incredible. Very cool. Is that what you were expecting to hear? (laughs) What were you expecting to hear? Not expecting that. (laughs) But now that you say it, it really does fit. I think your personality is made for that. So maybe a retirement project. Who knows? (laughs) Well, I'll make you you an offer. Yeah, when you come to Israel next, right? Uh, Next, I don't know. You haven't been, right? Have you been to Israel? No, but it's definitely on the list. It's definitely on the list. So it should be up on the bucket list, really high up. And when you come, I will personally take you on a tour of Jerusalem. <gasps> Done. Deal. Oh my gosh. Let's go book our flights, Maria. Let's do it. <laughs> Direct flight <laughs> from New York. <laughs> I bet I have some cousins there that immigrated from Morocco. So there's probably some sort of roots that I'll discover. <laughs> I think a quarter of the country right, well, from you. Morocco originally. So <laughs> right. <laughs> I think a quarter of the country is from Morocco originally. Yeah. I bet. Have a lot of uh, Awesome. Well, thank you so much, David. This has been an awesome conversation. Where can people reach out to you if you're open to them reaching out to you? Where can people find you? Absolutely. I'm on LinkedIn or David at Saibellum.com, S-C-Y-B-E-L-L-U-M.com. And also on LinkedIn, David Leichner, L-E-I-C-H-N-E-R. And happy to network, talk to people, give advice. If someone wants to come work here in cyber, I'll help you get in. (laughs) Awesome. Well, Everyone, thanks so much for listening to today's episode. Make sure to like it, subscribe it, give it five stars on every platform that you have possible. (laughs) And we'll see you next Wednesday. If you want to be on Breaking Through in Cybersecurity Marketing, send us an email at podcasts with an S at hackervalley.com or visit the website cybersecuritymarketingsociety.com backslash podcast 
no S. I think we'll standardize that at some point in the future. Also, if you want to join the Cybersecurity Marketing Society, just visit cybersecuritymarketingsociety.com and we're happy to have you. And we can continue the conversation in our very active, friendly Slack group of more than 950 cybersecurity marketers. Until it's next an time. amazing group. An Thank amazing you so much, group. David. All right. Been a real pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you.